Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. It is truly a story that came from nowhere, from obscurity, from absolute isolation, tending sheep in the desolate desert. He had no title, he had no power, he had no authority, he had no armies. All he had were sheep, and even those sheep weren't his own. For 40 years he lived in in absolute invisibility. Until one day, he stepped out of nowhere onto the pages of history. He approaches the most powerful man in the world at the time with that infamous line, let my people go. And a legend is made. Moses appears on the scene as a a leader and and a savior of the Israelites. He's getting them out of bondage. 1,450 years of stories have been passed down. For 1,450 years, the first five books of the Bible that he wrote under God's direction. What the Jewish nation holds to as their their Torah, their commands, their scripture, were penned by this man, Moses. There's not a greater leader, there's not a greater figure for this tribe of people in all of their history than Moses. And this creates a conflict as we read through the Jesus stories. When this Jesus shows up and he claims to be the son of God. 1,450 years after Moses, they're still holding on to Moses' writing. They're still holding on to Moses' tradition. And this guy, Jesus, doesn't line up with the God that they have been waiting for. And to truly get the story today, which the guys in the story, the disciples, you're going to see, they didn't get it. To make sure that we get the story today, I want to take us back to do a quickly, a a brief flyby of the entire book of Exodus, the, the story of Moses. I want to take you back and remind you of who this man is, this great prophet, this great leader for the Hebrew people. For us today, we may not be as familiar with, the, with some of the stories, but he's not, you know, he's not the very foundation of our civilization, the very f- basis of our, of our religion. We weren't told his stories every night as little children. We weren't passing them down, whispering them to, whispering to our children stories of Moses as they fell asleep, as the Hebrew people did. 
And to truly understand why people aren't getting Jesus, you kind of got to understand Moses. We're almost 20 weeks into our walk through the, the, the gospel of Mark, trying to figure out who this man, who this Messiah is. And we've been piecing together so far six chapters of, of stories of what he did around the Sea of Galilee, of what's happening inside the walls of Jerusalem. But we've got to go back briefly today, 1,450 years. Don't worry, we're not going to read the entire book of Exodus. I just put it there in your life notes, which I hope you have in your hand at this point. If you don't, raise your hand and one of the ushers can get you a copy. You can read Exodus on your own, and I, I've got a few blanks there for you to put notes in, but, but don't worry, they're going to be quick, I, I promise. So here we go. Moses, number one. Moses, he comes from royalty originally. You remember how the story starts. Uh, if you don't, it's okay. We're going to do this in about eight to ten minutes, and, and it's going to be a flash. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, he's head of the nation of, of Egypt, and he doesn't like the way that the Hebrew people are multiplying within his boundaries. And so he said, okay, I'm going to take care of this through population control. I want you to kill all the Hebrew boys. Every Hebrew boy that's born, you kill them. We'll eradicate this group of people that way. And so Moses' mother, she, she's a Hebrew, and she puts him in a basket that's covered with pitch and tar, and she hides him at the river in, 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 amongst some reeds. And Pharaoh's own daughter came down to, to, to bathe in the Nile with her, with her handmaidens who were attending to her. And she hears the baby's cries, and so they bring the basket to her, and she says, oh, a cute little Hebrew boy. I'm going to raise him. So Moses was raised inside the palace, inside the, the, the court. He was raised in a family of royalty. He was raised as a, as a son or grandson of Pharaoh. And so he grows up, and about age 40, he, he kills a guy. And so he has to run, and he leaves everything behind after having all the education, all the trappings of growing up in the palace in Egypt. He goes off to the backside of the desert, we're told, the backside of the Sinai. He spends 40 years there tending sheep. And one day he's watching the sheep and he, he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he thinks to himself, I got to go check out this bush. You know, it's kind of boring out there just tending sheep in the desert. So something like this comes up, you want to check it out. And as he walked up close to the bush, the bush speaks. Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, the ground you're standing on is holy. Now he's met a, a lot of bushes in his day out there in the desert, but this one, this one after, after 40 years, he's told it's time to go back home and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He's to go back to the Israelites and he asks them, he asks God, he says, what do I tell him? Who, who, do, who do I tell them sent me? And number two here, he meets the great I am. Remember that, a voice from the bush? Who do I tell them sent me? In a stuttering voice, used as an excuse to God why he couldn't go lead the people. And the Lord says, tell them, I am sent you. Mic drop. I'm the God who always has been. I'm the God who always will be. Just tell him, I am sent you. 
And so he comes from royalty, meets the great I am, and now he's sent to deliver his people. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh didn't want to let the people go, and so he went back and forth with Moses and God, and all these plagues hit Egypt, and it broke the nation apart, and they come out of Egypt, and they're leaving Egypt when the Egyptian armies are pursuing them, coming after them, and, and, and they walk up to the water of the Red Sea there, and, and Moses raises his staff at God's direction. And so number four, he walks with the Israelites through the water. The sea parts, and he walks through on dry land. God splits the Red Sea, and they walk through. And when the last Israelite steps off away from the sea, the Egyptian army is falling behind him, and the water comes back in and consumes the Egyptian army. Number five, he meets with God on a mountain. There's thunder and smoke and, and mountains shaking and a trumpet blast. And Moses walks up to the top of the mountain, to Mount Sinai, and he, and he meets with God at the top of that mountain. And number six, he's given God's words. He's given the commands of God. He's given God's words. He comes down with the Ten Commandments. And remember, the people are wandering in the desert. <clears throat> they're complaining. They're running out of food. He's got maybe a million, maybe two million. We don't know exactly the count there. He's leading them. And, and you can go through supply lines pretty quick that way. And if these people don't have food, they're, they're going to die. And he comes and he prayed to God. He, he says, you know, Yahweh, we have no bread. And the next morning, when the Israelites wake up, there's like Pop-Tarts all over the ground. The Hebrew word is manna, but it translates to Pop-Tarts, okay? There's Pop-Tarts all everywhere. You see, number seven, he prays for bread. And bread shows up every day. And a cool point of the story, though, is God told them to only collect enough for that day. Anything that stays overnight except the Sabbath will spoil and, and it's going to rot on you. It's going to make you deathly ill if you eat it the next day. This bread only lasts for a day because tomorrow, by faith, you're going to go out there and look for more Pop-Tarts, more manna. And you're going to see that I'm here. You're going to see that I'm providing for you. And I'm going to teach you in this way to walk by faith. Number eight, God passes by him. And you may want to write there next to that on your life notes, uh, Exodus chapter 33. Go back and read Exodus chapter 33. Toward the end of, of this entire story, Moses has a request of God. He says, Yahweh, would you allow me to see you? And God says, Moses, here's what we're going to do. And he takes him up and he, he, puts, him, he puts him in a cleft of the, of the mountain. And God says, I'll cover you. I'll pass by you. And as I pass by you, you'll be able to see the back of me. Now, God is, is not a finite being. But it's said that God's glory, God's goodness passed by Moses. And Moses got to see a glimpse of God as he passed by. The only other time that, that this happens in history is with maybe the second greatest prophet. And that was a guy named Elijah. Elijah. I've got a little nephew up in Columbus, named Elijah. It's a great, great name. And, and if you were growing up, if you were a he little Hebrew boy when, when you were growing up, you either had Moses or Elijah PJs. And you had the matching sheets and the matching pillowcases to go along with them. These were the two greatest action figures you had growing up as a Jewish boy. You know, one time Elijah, he called down fire from heaven, and he wiped out a whole bunch of satanic leaders. It's a story that every boy would love to hear. And he goes out in the wilderness after this, and, and he's in an incredible state of, of depression, and he, he leaves himself open to suicide and, and even death. 
And God gave him food and drink. He provided for him in this terrible time. He gave him rest. And then God takes Elijah up on the cleft of a mountain, and God passes by. For every Jewish boy and girl, they've grown up with these stories. They've heard them over and over and over again. They haven't grown up with, with Mickey Mouse and Pluto and all that kind of stuff. They heard these stories as they were growing up. And they saw this is how God interacted with the greatest prophets of your people. Night after night, stories being passed down. Oh, Elijah, can you imagine Yahweh, God Almighty, putting you in a place where he passes by. Number nine, Moses leads his people to an earthly promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He takes them out of their bondage in Egypt, and, and, and they he takes them to this promised land, something they couldn't even imagine. And this is the entire point of Exodus, the, the exiting from Egypt to the promised land. And yet... After 40 years of being led by God to the promised land, what was the result? Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. You know, it started that way with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He said, no way I'm going to let these folks go. And then plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague, after plague finally he relented. And he says, okay, get out of here. Go away. Be gone. And the Hebrew people start following Moses out. And then Pharaoh changes his mind again and says, okay, let's go get him. Let's bring him. Let's bring him back. And as they're going, all they're doing, all these rites are doing is griping and complaining and moaning. Despite God leading them, Pop-Tarts in the morning and water from a rock, they're griping, they're complaining. I'm glad we're not like that. <laughs> Despite miracle after miracle, no matter how much they saw God move, they still longed for their old way of life when they were in bondage in Egypt. They still wanted some of their, their old Egypt. And yet in this journey, Moses has written five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, the commands to the Hebrew people. Genesis, the beginning of God and your people. There's one God. He's the creator. He has called us to follow him. Exodus, the story I just did in about 10 minutes. Leviticus, here's the laws. Here's the things that are going to help you know how to live. This is how we walk with this God. Here's how we show that we're with him. And 1,450 years later, Jesus shows up. And everyone is grasping. Everyone is holding on to Moses. Everyone is holding on to this great prophet. Everyone is holding on to his teachings and all the other things they built up around that law, the 613 laws and, and all the mission on the other things that they, they built up. We're going to talk about, I think it's next week, around the law to protect the law because they thought God needed their help. And so we, we're in chapter 6 in the book of Mark, and, and we're going to come to a crisis here. You know, for 19 weeks, it's been building in our series so far. For six chapters, it's been building. And before we look at Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45 today, let's, let me catch you up quickly from, from verse 1 of chapter 6. In Mark 6, verse 1, after the healing of the blind, after the healing of those paralyzed, after the healing of, of leprosy and raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead, after teaching that stuns the crowd every place he goes, Jesus finally gets to his hometown of Nazareth. We called that maybe four, maybe, maybe five weeks ago. And his, in his hometown, they have all the facts about Jesus, 
but they don't have any faith in Jesus. His hometown goes up, wait a second, aren't you Mary's son? Aren't your brothers and, and sisters living in our, in our community? Aren't you supposedly Joseph's son? We know the story about your virgin birth. Yeah, uh-huh. We, you know, we don't even really know who your daddy is. Oh, we know the Bethlehem fable. We know all about that. We know who you are. We have all the facts. But they don't have the faith. And Jesus is amazed that a crowd that has all the facts about him, that they don't walk daily in a faith of who Jesus is. And Mark poses the question that's been hanging on for six chapters, and, and I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's going to hang on throughout the entire book. Who is this man? It's the question that you and I here in the 21st century that we need to grapple with. Who is this man, Jesus? The disciples have asked it before. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm a few weeks ago? He calms the storm, and they say, Who is this man? Did even the wind and the waves obey him? The crowd has asked it many times while he's teaching. Who is this? He teaches like he has authority. And his hometown, they asked the question, who's this guy? Is this the kid that grew up down the street? That was on my, my kid's soccer team? And chapter 6 is pushing to answer this question. And Jesus takes the disciples. Next story in chapter 6, he sends them out two by two. They go out, they do the miracles, they do the stuff, they come back, and they report back to him. But you know what? As I pointed out a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, you know, we're not told in the stories of what they did because it's not about them. It's about the one who sent them. They came back to the camp, and, and then they hear that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Their modern-day prophet had his head chopped off by Herod, Rome's puppet Jewish king. And maybe following Jesus, they feel, isn't all unicorns and rainbows. Maybe following Jesus doesn't mean just showers of blessing on me every day, on all of us. Maybe they're questioning, well, what does this mean for me? And Jesus tries to get his disciples a way to clear their heads and have a time of, of refocusing, a time of regrouping, a time of recapping all that's happening. And the crowd follows. So Jesus, we're told, as we saw last week, Jesus starts teaching them. We were told there he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus, like a lot of preachers, is kind of long-winded. He goes on and on and on. And the guys say, hey, we got to do something. We, we got to send these people away so they can get food. And as we saw last week, it was probably, you know, seven to 12,000 people. It was a lot of folks there. And so Jesus says, well, how much food do you have? Going to start pushing their buttons here. He says, you feed them. And like Peter and the boys are like, what? What are you talking about? He says, you feed them. They say, well, master, this, this, take a, you know, this take not quite a year's wages to, to, to feed all these folks. Jesus goes, how much food do you have? Well, well, not enough. Well, why don't you go and see? Well, why don't we go and see? Right, we got, like we got semi-trucks packed back there with sandwiches, or, or you know, Wendy's brought the, the traveling wagon in to cook up burgers for us, or, or Joe and his volunteers set up you know, hot dogs and hamburgers back there for us. How much food do you have? Well, not, not enough. Well, okay, well, just check it out. And so they come back, and he says, what would you find? What do you got? They said, five biscuits and two sardines. And Jesus takes it. And he gives thanks to the Father in heaven. And he breaks it, and he gives it to them. 
And a miracle occurs, and I believe this miracle, as I said last week, was just for the disciples. You see, he'd already told them to, to break up the people in groups of 50 and 100 and have them sit down. So they weren't up front. They didn't see what was going up so closely up on the stage. So they didn't see the multiplication necessarily there. This is for the disciples. And so they go out and they, and they, they, they feed all these people out of a kid's lunchbox. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, in this time with the stress you're carrying and all that I've shown you in six chapters, it's time to let you guys my closest disciples, it's time to let you know who I am. And no sooner than the miracle occurs, we come to a crisis point here in the book of Mark. And Jesus is ready to go there, but they are not. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Now, I know you're saying a pretty long intro after the feeding and all. We'll, we'll get there. After feeding the disciples, they pick up how many baskets? Twelve. They pick up twelve baskets full of leftover broken pieces. It says this. Verse 45, immediately... Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, on your life notes, I want you to circle immediately he made there. And next to it, I want you to write John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. John 6, 14 and 15, when John tells a story about the feeding of the 5,000, he gives us a little bit more detail. He says right after he immediately makes them get in the boat, there's an action here. He's like rushing them off. He wants them to get out of Dodge. He wants to send them on, get them away. And I think John gives us a clue as to why Jesus wanted the disciples to go. Because it says, by, according to John, on this day, the crowd realized that he was a prophet, and they wanted to make him king. Not King Jesus up in heaven. They wanted to make him an earthly king. Get rid of Pharaoh, kick the Romans out, and let's, let's make Jesus a political king of Israel. Just like David was king. Just like Solomon was king. And, it's a, and Jesus, I believe here, he knew that the tide had shifted. He's thinking, they think I'm a prophet. They want to march me to Jerusalem, make me king. He said, this is not the way it's going to go down. This is not the Father's plan. And I think Jesus knew, man, if the disciples get wind of this, they're, they're going to jump on the bandwagon. They're going to tell them how I multiplied the fish and the bread, and it's going to create this ripple effect that there's no way that we can stop. And this is not what I'm about at this time. I'm not going to be a prophet that's going to be made king. I'm going to do it the way that the Father wants me to do it. And so he gets the disciples out of the way. He puts them in the boat, and he sends them off. And then he dismisses the crowd. Then it says this, and continuing in verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. When the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. It could be translated, I am. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Circle that word amazed on your notes. They were amazed for, for it could be because, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And this becomes the linchpin of the entire story of the followers in Jesus. 
We've seen a group of people that opposed him. They, they didn't see him as God at all, the religious leaders. We have a crowd that sees him as an amazing prophet, and they want to make him king, a political king. We have the disciples who are amazed because their, their hearts are hardened. They don't understand the lesson of the loaves. And I'm looking at the story wondering, what in the world are they missing here? What is Jesus trying to do? The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Somewhere in the dark of the night, the dead hours of the morning, he finds himself on shore. And Peter and the boys are out of the boat, straining at the oars, trying to go against the wind to get over to Bethsaida. The, the northern wind from the, from the Golan Heights is coming down against them as they're trying to get there. There's no way that they're going to make, make it shore. And I think Jesus is thinking, and I think they're ready for this. I think they're ready for this. This is just for me and, and the boys. They're ready. And so he starts walking on the water towards the boat. Next to verse 48, I want you to write Job, Job 9, 8 through 11. Look at Job 9, 8 through 11 with me. It says he, and here the he that the, 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 the writer's talking about is God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that, that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes by me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I can't perceive him. The book of Job is talking here about the transcendent God, the creator God, the one that there's, we can't even imagine him, but yet he revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if Jesus has set up this entire thing for them. Please tell me, guys, that you're ready for this. By now, their faith should have been strong enough. By six chapters of the teaching and the miracle, surely by now you're going to get who I am. And he plays on story after story after story that they've heard. He plays on everything they've been told at night by good Jewish mothers, by Jewish fathers teaching them as they rock them to sleep. He plays on the part of the greatest Old Testament prophet that they have. And he's trying to show them, but I'm different. I love the way Mark Strauss, when he writes about this in his commentary, he puts it this way. He says, the disciples of Jesus are not expected to be fearless in every circumstance, but they are expected to learn from God's faithfulness. Remember the baskets? That's supposed to remind you of God's faithfulness. You're supposed to remind them of God's faithfulness in their past and grow in their faith for the future. So what is it the disciples are missing in this story? Well, why does it end with amazement because they did not understand about the loaves? Their hearts were hardened. You know, their hearts, they're not against God. Their hearts aren't angry at God. They're not bitter at God. They're just insensitive to the fact that this is God with us. They know that Jesus is in the boat, but they don't have a clue as to who this Jesus is in the boat. And as we're about to go down, as we look at the lines of Moses, let's put together the lines of Jesus. Go back to the front of your sheet there. Let's see what, what's been happening for these last six chapters, what, what these Hebrew men should have figured out on their own, what Jesus expected them to get on their own. First of all, Jesus claims to be royalty. We hit this back at the beginning of chapter 2 when, he, when they cut a hole in the roof. Remember when they dropped the paralyzed man down through in, in front of Jesus? And Jesus tells them in front of the crowd, your sins are forgiven. The crowd is shocked beyond disbelief. 
Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yeah. They're like, wait a minute. He says, well, what's, what's easier, to, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell someone to pick up their mat and walk away? And so that you'll know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, hey, dude, pick up your mat and get out of here. He goes all the way back, and again, to the Old Testament, something that these Hebrews would know, to, to Daniel chapter 7. The prophecy that one day the Son of Man would come, that God would invade the earth. And Jesus stands 83 times, 83 times he uses that title and says, I am he. I'm the Son of Man. I wasn't taken in and and adopted by a family into royalty. I am royalty. Not an earthly king like you folks think, but I am the king. And if Moses is number two, Moses meets the great I am, well, Jesus says, I just said, is the I am. They call on the storm, and he says, it's me. I am. Moses was sent to deliver his people. Number three, Jesus is sent to deliver his people. Not just the Jews, but he was sent to deliver all nations. But it's this story right now. He's trying to perform a rescue mission. Peter and the boys can't get, they can't make headway against this, against this storm, against these winds coming down at them. He's standing on line. He sees the disciples. The Bible says that they're straining. He realizes we need a rescue mission here. So I'm going to go out to them because they cannot get to me. We saw that Moses walked through water. Jesus walks on water. Just before that, he meets God on the mountain. He's up on the mountain praying, just like Moses had met God on the mountain. I know we're going quick. We'll get through these. Number six. If Moses has given God's words, Jesus speaks God's words. Moses gave you laws about leprosy. Jesus speaks and cures leprosy. Moses gave you laws about what to do with those who are diseased. His words heal disease. Moses gave you laws about what to do at the time of death. Jesus raises people from death. Next, Moses prays for bread, and there's bread every day. Jesus creates bread. And boys, this should have pushed you over the limit. I mean, I, I did this for you. I showed you guys this, what was going to happen here. At this point, it should have, should have snapped with you who I am and who's standing in front of you. I'm not, I'm not just any mere prophet. I'm not just some superhero. God has invaded planet Earth. Your entire basis, your Pentateuch, your Torah, your first five books of the Bible are written by a guy that had to pray for bread, and that bread lasted only one day. I've created bread, and I told you to pick up the leftovers. And there was a reason for that. Mine doesn't have any expiration date. Twelve baskets full. And Jewish boys should have had their minds blown at this time. We see the pattern, what you've been doing, what what you're setting up. You know, Moses walks through water. Jesus walks on water. You know, I don't have to split water, Jesus says. I made the H, I made the two, and I made the O. I command molecules. I'm over all over the natural world. Back there in Genesis, the beginnings, when it says that God spoke that word, my boy John's going to write about it later. He's going to tell you who that word is. That's me. That word has now became flesh and is dwelling among you. But they didn't understand it. I tread upon water. Job 9, 8 through 11 tells you only God does that. Next, God passes by Moses, and Jesus passes by them. And as Jesus gets out there, he's about to pass by them, and you might be like, hey, man, wait a minute, you've kind of overshot a little bit, but Jesus had a reason for that. Why is he passing by? See what he's doing? 
oh my gosh, he, he's taken these two greatest heroes, the two greatest prophets of the Israelites, these stories about them, and Jesus is reenacting them for them. Let know that God is the one that passes by, that walks by you. And I think he's on the shore realizing it's chapter 6, and after what you saw me do with the bread, you're ready for this. I'm going to reenact these great stories that you've heard. I'm going to blow out the pages every prophet you've ever seen. The crowd wants a prophet to be a king. I will not play prophet for anybody. I'm going to do this on the terms. I'm going to, I'm going to show you what you've learned in your Shabbat school, your Sabbath school. I'm going to show you that God has invaded your boat. And they completely miss it. He says, I'm going to show you everything that, that your greatest prophet Moses did. Only I'm 10,000 times, 10,000 times, 10,000 times better. Do the multiplication. I have no expiration date. And you're hanging on to his words? My words better change you. And chapter 6 tells us the result. They were terrified. Their hearts were hardened. Not against Jesus, not angry, not bitter, but just insensitive to the fact that the creator of the universe is sitting there in the boat with them now. You truly, like the crowd, think that I'm a good teacher, I'm a great example, I'm, I'm just setting up another religion? You see, if Moses was leading his people to an earthly promised land, Jesus is leading to an eternal promised land. And I bet you got the last feeling already, didn't you? And their hearts were what? Hardened. Hearts were hardened. And folks, we didn't, even, we didn't even begin to scratch the surface on the comparison on how Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament. But go back to Hebrews and it talks there about how much superior Jesus is to Moses, to the prophets, to the first covenant, to the old priests in the, under the sacrificial system. You know, we didn't even scratch the, the surface this morning that, that when Moses was born, just like Pharaoh wanted to kill all the male children, well, when Jesus was born, similar thing happened. And, and the king sent out a decree that all the boys born in Bethlehem under the age of two would be killed, put to death. And Mary and Joseph have to escape. They had to go. Jesus was a refugee. Do you ever, ever realize that? Jesus was a refugee. And where'd they go? Egypt. And Egypt took him and his family in for, for a while, and, and he was able to, to, to live there and be protected from this angry king. It is Jesus every step of the way. Uh, and by chapter 6, I wonder if he's standing on shore thinking, I'm going to put you guys in a place where I'm going to now show you who I am. Please tell me you're ready for this. And he walks across the water. And so as I'm looking at this, and I'm, I'm, as I'm jumping to that last one where it says, it says, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Remember I told you last week that, that what happened there at the end, that the loaves were supposed to be a reminder to them, and it wasn't just for that story that I told you last week, that we were going to come forward, that this week we were, there was going to be a parenthetical remark about that. And this is going to continue. It's not just here. It's going to continue. This was a huge lesson they were supposed to learn. This wasn't just some little throwaway. They were supposed to realize what happened at that feeding of the 5,000. And folks, we have to stop we need to stop associating the disciples with our example. You know, you're, well, wait a minute, aren't, aren't these Jesus' followers? Well, of course. But the problem is right now in the story, they're following in the wrong direction. We can't look at them and say, hey, this is how we're supposed to go, because no, 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 from this point, keep with you over the following weeks. It gets worse. It gets worse. From this point on, the disciples are going to show they think this is all about them. They think it's all about them. From this point on, they don't get the parables. From this point on, Jesus has to pull them aside and said, dudes, don't you hear 
what I'm saying? Don't, you, don't your eyes see what I'm trying to show you? And they're like, uh, no, what are you talking about? He's like, that's the point. Put your ears on. Open your eyes. On the road, they start arguing about who's number one through 12 amongst the 12 of them. They start arguing, you know, who's going to be the greatest? And, and, and you know, now that we're following Jesus and we know he's got this power, what's he going to do for me? Where, where, where's he going to put me in the pecking order? I wonder how, much, how big my sliver of the pie is going to be. And two of the disciples, they decide to jump over the other 10. Not, or the other, you know, not physically, okay? But figuratively, they decide to jump over and they say, Hey, Jesus, will you make us one and two in your kingdom? Two and one, we don't care. We're brothers, so we'll work it out between us. You can trust us. And James and John go to Jesus, and Jesus said, you, you guys have no idea what you're asking. You don't, oh, it's okay. Ima, mom, 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 she, she's, she's for us. And, and you, know, you, know, you can't argue with a Jewish mother, right, about her boys. All the disciples, they, they tell Jesus that, that they'll stand by him to the bitter end. Even if, even if it means laying down their lives, they're going to they're lay down their lives with him. And what happens on the night when the temple guards come to take him away? They scatter. They run away. One of them comes back to check out what's going on, and he curses Jesus three times, and another one goes out and commits suicide. These guys may be an example, but they're not an example of how to follow Jesus at this point. But don't worry if you're a huge fan of the disciples. You, you know, you've got that picture hanging up in your, in your dining room. You don't need to go down, back and take it down. They're going to redeem themselves later in the book. I'm just saying that by chapter 6, they're not our examples to follow in what is the lesson of the loaves? What is the hardened heart? How did they forget about this lesson they were supposed to get? Put it down this way in your life notes. Fill this one in, please. It's a very short one. Only going to have to write two, two letters there. A hardened heart belongs to the follower that thinks, it's all about me. It's all about me. And I tell you, folks, those of us, I think just about everybody here has, has grown up in a Western culture, and the Western culture teaches us this. Most of us here are, are older generation, older boomers, a few past the builder generation, but particularly the younger ones, the children of the boomers and stuff like that. There might be a few here, a couple. Parents really taught it was, all about, it was all about me. You know, everybody gets a participation trophy. Everybody's a winner. No child left behind and all that stuff. We've had it because the parents were, felt guilty about what was going on. That's a whole other thing we don't have time to unpack right now. It's all about me. Jesus is in my boat to bless me, to answer my prayers, to guide me. That's the hardened heart of the story. They were amazed. So far up to chapter 6, amazement has followed Jesus, and, and it's been a great thing. So far, chapter 6, amazement has been awesome. The crowds hear Jesus' is teaching, and they're amazed. This guy teaches as one with authority. The crowd sees his miracles, and they're amazed. Jesus calms a storm, and the disciples are amazed two chapters ago. Who is this guy? The wind, the waves... They, they, wait, they obey him. And now we come to an amazement. And I told you back in the first couple chapters when we started, Mark, back in October. And if you didn't get it, you can go back and listen to podcasts. If you don't know how to get podcasts, let me know. If you've got an electronic connection to the Internet, I can help you get podcasts. I told you back then a few words that Mark uses. One of them is immediately. Another one is amazement. If you went through your Bible and circled those, you'd be amazed, pun intended, at how many times you circled those words. And now we have an amazement that takes on an entirely negative connotation. We have an amazement because their hearts are hardened. And as I said, what's a hardened heart? It's you're following Jesus. You're listening to his words. You know all the facts, but yet your hardened heart belongs to a follower that thinks it's all about me. 
We make him just another great teacher, another great prophet, another religion, that we get to choose which one is right according to me. We make this a philosophy, an ideology that works for me. Because that's my God-given right, isn't it? I mean, that's what my constitution in the United States says. But let me tell you, this may be hard. It may be the first time you've heard it. Christianity is not about me, and it's not about you. Oh yeah, we get to participate in this, but it's not ultimately about me. I'm not the centerpiece. I'm not the star of the show, and neither are you. It's the creator invading creation and allowing us, allowing us to walk alongside him. And the disciples, they still think it's all about them. Another reference right down your notes, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. When the Israelites had to take the promised land, they came up against the city of Jericho. Big city, big walls. You know, go back and, and, and read it. Moses is dead. Joshua's been commissioned. He's, he's Moses' successor. And he's got to lead all these people that have been bellyaching their way through the, through, the, through the desert for 40 years. He's got to lead them on this military campaign. And I'm sure the guy was sweating bullets, okay? I mean, I mean who can measure up to Moses? This is the first step in taking the promised land. And I'm sure, I'm sure Josh is, is thinking, man, if, if we blow this, when our season's done, it's over. And as he leads an army of a bunch of ex-slaves who have been in the wilderness for 40 years, they come up to a place, and this commander, we're told it's the commander of the Lord's army, is standing in the middle of the road, blocking the way, holding a sword. One dude in the middle of the desert, heat blazing around him, holding a sword. It's like, Seriously? This is the worst ambush in history. <laughs> See how many people we got? And Josh walks up to him and says, are you for us or against us? And the scripture says, the Lord Almighty says, neither. Boom. Take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. And Josh is there and he's like, man, Big guy Moses. Something like this happened to him once. And can you imagine what happened there? Can you imagine the laughter of the angels in heaven? <laughs> These guys think it's all about them. Are you, are you for us or against us? I'm sure the angels are laughing. You really think God wakes up, you know, and it's all about you, Josh? Well, yeah, it is about me. I have rights. It's about what God does for me. I mean, the Bible does say that God is for us. Folks, the mystery of all history is that God invaded earth and allows us to be on his team, not vice versa. He allows us to be on his team. But we've made it about us. Hardened hearts are those that think that, that, that in the boat that we're trying to follow Jesus, they think it's all about me. It's my boat. We come to church and we think, okay, what's this, how's this going to pay off for me, I didn't get anything out of the worship. You ever been guilty of saying that? I didn't get anything out of the sermon. No, you never said that here. But um, we, we make it all about eat me. It's, it's, I'm, the, I'm the arbiter of what's right, what's wrong, of what's good, what's bad. We go to Bible study or we go to small group and we think, well, maybe this will, will make me points. It'll make me a better person. We think Jesus is here to bless me. He's, he's here to guide me. The Holy Spirit's supposed to bless me and guide me. He's supposed to answer my prayers. He's supposed to, 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 this is my religion. This is the teaching that I have chosen. This works for me. 
And I'm sorry if that hits close to home. I know it hits close to home for me. Jesus says, you need to get rocked to get rid of you. And he sends them out into the storm. Because once they get rocked in a storm, once they come to their own helplessness, once they come to their own depravity, they'll be in a better place to see who I am. And they missed it. Just like the Israelites, after 40 years of wandering around the desert, getting ready to go into the promised land, they missed it. Just like the Jewish authorities in a few chapters here, when they say crucify him, they miss it. Sometimes the most hardened of hearts needs a jackhammer. And maybe God sends us into storms and he allows us to get rocked. He says, I put you in the storm and I will rock you and I will get you to a place where you'll be able to see me and you will see that I, God Almighty, creator of the universe, has invaded your boat. Don't miss it. We've been building to chapter 6. Who is this man, this crowd, his hometown, the disciples? They've all uttered those words over and over again. And as I said, it doesn't go well for the disciples. Maybe if you're going through hell, maybe if the hell you're going through on earth, maybe it'll save you from an eternal hell. Maybe it'll cause you to, to take your focus off me and your focus go to him. None of us like to go through the fire. None of us likes to go through trials. None of us likes to be shattered. But if that's what it takes to awaken us to the type of God that we have, Jesus says, I have outdone Moses. Well, if that's a hardened heart, then an open heart is this. My life is his. My life is his. My life, my day, my job, my family, my relationships are to honor Christ. It's his show, not mine. He walks on water. I don't. I don't want to let this God pass me by. And you wake up every day with this goal in mind to say, what can I do to honor you today, Lord? Not, okay, Lord, here I am. Your little boy, bless me. It's like you said. Oh, I'm glad that we have a generous God. I'm so glad that every good and perfect gift comes from God. But if my role in life is to walk through cancer, if my role in life is to walk through trials, to go through the storm, he says it's time for you guys to go through the storm. In the storm, I'm going to show you the true me that the crowd doesn't get. And they missed it. It's his show. He's not on my side. I'm not the star of the show. By faith, I not only know the facts about Jesus, but now I walk in faith, walk in faith with the creator of the universe. I play a B-roll, a bit role in his story. But because of his love, his death, the way that he bought me, it's his, not mine. And we're almost finished. And the story, did you think that something's missing here? You know, if you've heard this story before, if you've read through the gospel before, you, or you think, wait a minute, something's missing from this story. Something's not, not, not here in this, what you just read in Mark. Wait a second, you, what, so what's, what's missing? I had a commanding officer on my first ship, and he threw out at the, in the wardroom t dining table one night that, well, there's only one man that ever walked on water. A little instant, he said, oh, excuse me, sir. There was another guy that walked on water. Who was it? Peter. Peter walked on water. But it's not told in Mark. I mean, this is like, this could be Peter's greatest moment. I got to walk on water with Jesus. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be able to tell people that? Hey, here's the miracle that happened in my, my, my life. Jesus was coming out to save me and the boys in the boat. And Jesus walked out, told me to come out to him. And I got out. The other guys were scared. They stayed there. But I got to walk out. Well, we know what really happened. The other gospels tell us, you know, Peter got out. He started walking, kind of freaked out. And he started sinking. Jesus took his hand and helped him to the boat. 
This is Peter's greatest story. It could be his crowning moment. But it's not the story that's in Mark. And I'm going to tell you why. If you're here back in October when we started, I told you then that Mark's primary source was who? Peter. Mark's the, the, the secretary for, for, for the fishermen. He's a secretary for, for Peter. You see, P Peter will get it. He'll get Jesus after Jesus dies and rises again. He'll get it after he walks with the risen Lord. He'll get it after Jesus stands with nail-scarred hands and feet and says, Hey, buddy, you blew it, you blew it, you blew it. I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Now, let's go. But when it comes for time for Peter to, to, to write this story in his version, he leaves himself out. Because Peter gets it. It's not about me. And I'm sure as he's talking and Mark's sitting there scribing, doing whatever scribes do, he's writing it down. And he'll say, hey, Peter, let's put this story in there. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I'll put myself at the end of the book, the place where I curse him three times. That's the part I play in his story. My God walks on water. I don't. Leave me out of our book. And Mark might say, well, well but, but Matthew's going to put it in his book. He's going to tell everybody that you walked on water. And Peter's going to say, well, Matt and I never got along anyway. <laughs> He'll get it. They won't get it in these chapters, but you and I, we have 2,000 years of experience. We have 2,000 years of seeing his risen life. 2,000 years of Christmas and Easter being on our calendar. 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers that they didn't have. We have a God that passes through church, not a group of buildings, but a people saying, who do you think I am? A prophet, a miracle worker, a king here to bless you with answers to your prayers? He says, guys, gals, get over yourself. I'm the star of the show, and you're allowed to, to honor me. You're allowed to walk beside me. I'm better than any Moses. What a story. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.